Well, it was a good football weekend, if you're a Lopers fan or a Bearcats fan, and other good football weekends to come, I suppose. Let me begin this morning by asking this question. Was Jesus a follower or a leader? Like, here was a man who upended one of the great empires of the world in a mere three and a half years. Here was a man who upended one of the great world religions in a mere three and a half years. And he said that he was one with the Father, and he proved it, and he rose far from the grave, and, and clearly he was a leader, right? I mean, he was a great, great leader. But also, here was a man who said things like, I do not come to you as the rulers of this age come to you. I am a servant of all. The rulers of this age tend to rule over people, but I come to you as one who serves. He even went so far as to say, I do not say a single word of my own accord, not by my will, but by the Father's will. I only speak those words that the Father gives me to speak All the Father's will, none of my own, he said. And he proved it by actually getting on his knees and picking up a wash basin and a towel and on one particular occasion, washing 12 disciples' feet. 24 stinky feet in one setting. He was a follower, was he not? Was he a leader or a follower? He was both. Yes, yes, is the answer to that question, yes. Like many things in theology, Jesus was both. He was both the lion and the lamb. He's both master and servant. He's both Lord and king, and he is friend to sinners. And the key that unlocks these realities, that he is both servant and leader, that he is both follower and leader at the same time is the beautiful Christian doctrine that we call the Trinity. We've included this message on the Trinity in our uh, series, God's Story, Our Story, even though it's not a specific episode within uh, the, the Bible story, because the, the Trinity is the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us from the first pages of Genesis to the last pages of, Re- of, of Revelation. And, and people might, might ask, well, why would you include this? Again, it's not a specific story. The, the reason we're choosing to include a message in this, this series, God's Story, Our Story, is because the Trinity is this profound key for understanding how God has chosen to reveal himself in his complexity and in his mystery. And if we understand a bit more of God in all of his glory through this teaching of the Trinity, so also we will understand a bit more of ourselves as we are made in God's image. I would like to suggest to you this morning that this arcane theological discussion called Trinity, which many people today shy away from, is intensely relevant to our lives, the way we live, Monday through Friday, even today. Now, to get there, though, this morning, I've just posed two very simple questions on your outline, and as the title to this message, 
The title of the message is One and Three, Huh and Why? So two very simple questions, huh and why? I wonder if I can get a little bit of your audience participation this morning here and in the venue. I need it today as we talk about this subject matter. So what we're going to do, will you participate with me? Come on, shake your head up and down. Thank you. Okay, Um, so you're going to ask me, Adrian, could you please explain to me the doctrine of God? Okay, I'll do my best. All right, thanks for asking. Okay. All right, so, so here it is, and I'm going to explain it to you, and then your job at that point is to look at me with a very, very perplexed face and, like, put your finger on the side of your head and say, huh? Okay, all right, so I'm going to explain. Thank you for asking. So the doctrine of God is this. It's, it's called the Trinity, and the Trinity is this teaching that God is one God with three persons And these three persons are called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are eternally united and yet eternally distinct. They are co-equal and interdependent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Huh? Yeah, like, okay, you got all that? I'm not sure if we'll get it all this morning, but I'm going to do my best here in the next moments to explain your, explain an answer to your question, huh? What do you mean by, by that? Is it one God or is it three gods you Christians believe in? Is it one God with three parts you Christians believe in? Is it one God with three manifestations, kind of like a magic show that you Christians believe in? Can you please explain this? Well, we're going to try to break it down this morning. How many of you wish that you had an opportunity to go to seminary? Okay, today, jackpot, you get to go. You get to go to seminary. Jackpot, you came on the right day for church. It's Labor Day, so we're going to do some work. If you're in the business of taking notes, today would be a good day to take notes. Okay, God reveals himself as one God with three persons. One God comprised of three persons, as you see on your outline. The first part of that statement is simple enough, and we see it again and again in the Old Testament scriptures and also in the New Testament, that Jesus says this as he repeats from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God, Jesus said, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment which Jesus noted again and again as he quotes back to Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 20 and other places in the Hebrew Scriptures as well. So that's well and good. That's quite obvious. The Lord is one. God reveals himself as singular. But the Scriptures go on to tell us that he is three unique persons within the Godhead. The Father is the source. The Son is the way. And the Holy Spirit is the power. One God, three persons. The Father is the source of all. God reveals himself to us as Father and source of all. So there's many different verses in the Scripture, of course, though, that speak to God as Father. One of my favorites is James 1.17. One of the the songs that we sometimes sing here at Carnegie Free goes like this. It's your breath in our lungs. You give us the breath, Father. 
that God speaks and the universe leaps into existence and God sustains us. He gives us breath to even exist. And that comes out of this idea from James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above, flowing down from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't ever change, who is consistent, who is reliable, who can be relied on each and every time. He is the Father who is the source of all. And isn't it interesting, even as he speaks and the universe leaps into existence at creation, he's not alone. The Father is not alone. So you go back to the very first pages of Genesis, the very first pages of the Hebrew Scriptures, this fiercely monotheistic faith says this in Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Do you notice the plurality there in the pronouns that are used? Okay, pronouns are really, really important, says the English teacher and the pastor. Okay, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. How can such a fiercely monotheistic faith say that? Because the Father is with the Son, and the Son is with the Spirit, and they are together even at the Moment of creation, they are already in communion together there. God reveals himself to us as father and source of all, and he reveals himself to us as son and the way for all. He is the son who is with the father from the very beginning. He is the self-existent God himself. And so when he comes onto the scene and he's answering to his disciples who he is, he is able to say things like this. John 14, 6, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he goes on to say, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. If you see me, you've seen God himself. Right? I mean, that's unmistakable, isn't it? That he's claiming in this instance to be co-equal with God. Would you agree that's unmistakable? Now, people oftentimes take a look at John 14, 6. Let's put that back up on the screen, John 14, 6. And they say, that's so mean-spirited, Jesus. I'm the way, the only way to God. I'm the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me like why, do you, why are you so mean-spirited, Jesus, to Buddhists or Muslims or Mormons? Or, or, why, why, are you so mean, why are you so exclusive, Jesus? It's not that Jesus is here seeking to be exclusive to adherents of other religions. He is merely saying they weren't with the Father from the foundation of the world. It's not that he's mean to Muhammad or mean to Buddha. It's just that they weren't there. So they cannot be the way. And so he says instead, if you want to know the way to the Father, it is through the Son who has always been co-equal with the Father from the very beginning. This is not so much an exclusive message as it is an inclusive invitation to anyone who will receive Christ as Lord and the way to the Father and the sustenance 
of all. Jesus says things again and again in the scriptures like, God forgives you. Who can say that? He says things like, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I and the Father are one. And things like, before Abraham was even born, I am. It's very interesting to me when uh, certain university theology departments, and I've been in these departments, will say things like, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's so fascinating to me because when you look at Jesus interacting with the religious leaders of the day, it was unmistakable to them what he was doing. They picked up rocks to stone him. They took him to a cross to crucify him because to them he was claiming to be God, the way to the Father, the way to reconcile you and me and anyone who calls in the name Jesus to the Father. He is the way. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, and as the third person of the Godhead, he reveals himself as spirit and power for all. For all. God reveals himself as spirit and power for all. One of my favorite sections of the Bible is John 14 through 16, and in that, that, that little section, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his leaving this earth, his coming crucifixion, and the fact that he'll be gone. And they are mourning the fact that they will not be with their master teacher any longer. And the way he comforts them is this promise again and again that he is going to send to them the Holy Spirit who will be this advocate, this comforter, this counselor to be with them at all times. And he even goes on to say that it's better for you that I leave so that the Holy Spirit would come and reside in you and be with you. John 15, 26 says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, I sent him along with the Father. We were together. We send the Spirit to you, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father and he will testify about me. Once again, third member of the triune Godhead from the Father and the Son testifying about the Father and the Son. So he is our advocate, he is our counselor, and also he is our power. Look at Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says this, you will receive power. Let's read this out loud together. Would you join me? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. So we receive the Holy Spirit's power who come and dwells within us, and that gives us the power for ministry. Whatever ministry you're a part of, I pray that you rely on the Holy Spirit on a day-in and day-out basis because God quite literally lives within you. How about that? The Holy Spirit actually dwells within you by faith through the way of Jesus. The word for power there in Acts 1.8 in the ancient Greek language that the New Testament was written in was dunamis, dynamis, from which we might get dynamite. You will receive dynamite when the Holy Spirit comes on you and then you'll be my witnesses. Come on, give me some more of that. One God, three persons, one essence, 
three persons, one what, three who's, co-equal, interdependent, unique, subjecting themselves to each other from the very foundations of the world. Uh, the Father is the source, the Son is the way, the Holy Spirit is the power. Because they're co-equal and interdependent, they work with each other in these various ministries, but that's three ways that you see their ministries predominantly displayed in the Scriptures. On the back of your outline, though, this morning, you'll see a little triangle drawing though, that explains this a little bit. If you think of the idea of illumination, that God says, let there be light into the world, you think of God the Father being the source of that light. He has the idea, the big exclamation point. The Son is the way He flips the light on, as you look at this illustration up on the screen. The Son flips the light switch on, and then finally the, the Spirit provides the electricity, okay, the power. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit together in saying, let there be light coming to the world. Do we have that one on the screen here? There it is. The Father is the source, the Son is the way, the Holy Spirit is the power that brings the electricity, so to speak. Now, there is no perfect illustration to comprise the Trinity. I don't think there's any perfect analogy. There have been many that have been attempted across many different centuries, and in one way or another, they all break down. And so any illustration that I would provide today will not be a perfect illustration that you can hang your hat on. They're, they're merely ways of seeking to understand the mysteriousness of God that cannot completely be understood by our finite minds. But one that has been helpful for me is thinking of a family. So a, a family typically, though not always, typically has a mom and a dad and kids, okay? So you have three different roles. Those roles are interdependent, to be sure, but there are different roles and responsibilities amongst mother and father and kids while within the family. And they are all of this one essence called the Smith family. Okay, they're unique. They each play different roles, but they're of this one essence called the, the Jones family. Three persons, one family. Once again, it breaks down in points, but it helps to explain how the Trinity is not contradictory. It may be mysterious, but it is not contradictory. If we were to stand up here and say it is one essence and three essences, then that would be contradictory. That's not what I'm saying. It's one God, one essence and three unique interdependent persons. I still cannot fully comprehend it, but I do apprehend it. That means I lift it off the pages of Scripture in literally hundreds of different places. In both the Old and the New Testament, hundreds of different places, we lift the plurality of the monotheistic Godhead off the pages of Scripture. Again, I still can't completely comprehend it, but I am increasingly okay with some mystery in my faith the older I get. Truth be told, you talk to almost any expert in almost any field, they will admit to some areas of mystery that they cannot fully comprehend. You talk to a physicist, for example, and you ask a physicist to show you light. They'll say, well, you see those particles? That's light. You ask another physicist, show me light. 
You see those waves? Those waves, that's light. Well, which one is it? It's both. How is it both? I don't know. Huh? I can't figure it It just is. Or can you explain gravity to me, please? Uh, like, there, there are things that we know are true which we cannot fully comprehend. I love the way Dr. Del Tackett puts it in The Truth Project. He notes as well that there are these marks of the triunity that have have been impressed upon the universe. Little marks of the triunity impressed upon the universe. So there's three different forms of matter. There's solid and liquid and gas. You have three different primary colors out of which every other color comes. You have an atom, which consists of three elements, of course, proton, neutron, and electron. These are marks of the triunity on our universe. Now, that helps me to apprehend what my mind cannot completely comprehend. Are you following me? Okay. Here's another reason that I believe it. Jesus taught it. Jesus taught it. And Jesus rose from the grave. And I don't know about you, anyone who lived the perfect life that Jesus lived and offered to die for my sins and claimed to be God and then actually backed it up by rising from the grave, I'm going with him. Like whatever he says, I'm going with that. And so since he taught it again and again, even though I cannot comprehend it, I am going with him. Does that help? Does that help answer your question, huh? Okay, maybe, maybe not. But that's my best answer for you for this morning. Okay, the second question is, why? Okay, help me out. Why, Why, Adrian? Okay, thank you again for asking. Thank you for the participation. Why does God reveal himself? Why does the scripture reveal God to be one God, one essence in three persons? And I love the why questions. I will never shame anyone in this church for asking the why questions. I was one of those kids growing up who always asked why, and mom and dad got so sick of it, but I'm so grateful I had a mom and dad who allowed me to ask why, and they didn't just say, oh, the Bible says so. Like, we could talk about it together, and that was so powerful for me, and I will never shame you for asking the why questions even after this conversation about Trinity today, yeah, you might have some, but I, I see at least four different reasons from the scripture why God reveals himself in this complex and beautiful fashion, and it helps me to understand myself better, and these help me to understand God in his beauty, in his radiance better. Here's the first. The Trinity reveals to us that submission is actually a good word. Really? Am I allowed to say that in 2018? Yes, submission is actually a good word. Here's Jesus who says, I never say anything of my own accord, but only what my Father gives to me. He was the only one in all of history who lived the Father's will 100% of the time, and it was as he was the only Son of God, Lord over heaven and earth, with the Father in creation, the way to the Father, and he submitted constantly to the Father. Read John 14, for example, which tells me that in spite of all the cultural entanglements, submission in itself is not a bad word, it's actually a good word. 
If Jesus, who is Lord, submits constantly to the Father, then that explains to me that I, in my position, sometime will need to submit to co-workers who know more about certain areas of study than I do. It leads me to believe that if I'm in a marriage that's practicing Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, I will allow that there are some things that Susie knows far better than me, and I better submit to her on those. And there are some things that I might know better than her. And there might even be a time that we lock heads like this, but if she sees me as husband to her on a regular basis, being a sacrificial leader like Jesus, being a servant leader like Jesus. Jesus put the adjective servant in leadership. And if she sees me leading in that way, looking out for her interests rather than my own interest, and doing that on a day-in and day-out basis, never lording it over her, then occasionally she might even want to say, I respect you so much that I will submit to you. Not that I would ask or beg for that, That would be a demonstration that I'm not leading well. But submission by itself, contrary to 2018 culture, is a demonstration of meekness and humility. And I will think of you before I think of self. And it was modeled to us most glorious by Jesus as he submitted to his Father. The Trinity also gives us a more dynamic prayer life. To be able to pray in full confidence to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actually gives us a more robust and dynamic prayer life. This summer, uh, we had a good parenting moment, just one of them. (laughs) Plenty of not-so-good parenting moments in our house, but we... We memorized scripture in our home, and the boys were memorizing Psalm 23. And when Silas finished memorizing Psalm 23 and then repeated it out loud, we then asked him to lead us in prayer, and he prayed, Lord, thank you that you are always with us forever. And it's not just you, God. It's Jesus, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit, too. All of you guys... We love you. Thank you, God. Amen. Mm. I had to write that one down. I mean, it was this special parenting moment where he got it a little bit, and he may not have got the Trinity perfectly, but he started to understand the dynamic approach that we have to God in prayer because of the Trinity. Do you see? Do you see? Like, if you just pray, dear God, please help me today, you'll get bored. Prayer becomes so boring It becomes so monotonous if it lacks specificity, if it deals always with generalities. Dear God, would you please be with me tomorrow? Amen. Dear God, bless this food, whoever you are, wherever you are. Amen. You will not be motivated for prayer if you pray like that. You show show me someone who prays like that, I will show you someone who hardly ever prays. But you show me someone who prays like this. Dear Father, you are source of all. You've put the breath in my lungs. You give me strength for each day. And tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., I have a really difficult meeting which I need your strength for. 
Would you please grant me your strength? You are the giver of all wisdom, the scriptures say. So God, Father God, would you please give me wisdom for this meeting tomorrow? I do not have what it takes on my own. That'll motivate you for prayer. Or, Lord Jesus, you are the great reconciler. You're the one who redeemed me from my sin. You're able to reconcile me to my sister, who I have something against. And this Friday, I have an opportunity to see her. Would you give me courage to say, I'm sorry? Would you give me courage to say, I forgive you? Jesus, you are the reconciler who reconciled me to God when I did far more against the Father than she has ever done against me. Would you help me to be a reconciler? Jesus, you are the great reconciler. I don't have it in myself. Please help me. Amen. Do you see the difference? Anyone? Okay. To pray specifically is to motivate your prayer. You, you, to have a robust prayer life, we have to move beyond generalities and move to specificity. And because we have a triune God, the Father who is the source of all, the Son who is the way of all, the Spirit of God who is the power for all, we can pray to each member of the Godhead and know that we are being faithful in prayer there. And I dare say, not only will you be more motivated for prayer, you'll see more answers to prayer. Who would like that? Third, the Trinity reminds us that God is actually love. God is love. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in his magnum opus, Mere Christianity, which is just such a powerful, powerful book. If you're asking the why questions particularly, still after 60-some years, it's such a powerful book. He says, all sorts of people are fond of stating the Christian statement, God is love. Non-Christians love that statement. God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Follow me now. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, there was not love. You following? God can't be love in his very essence if there was not another person with the Father from before the world was made. There would have been no one for him to love. And so what he, does, what he does in creation, what he does, what he does in creation is he invites us into the communion that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have had since eternity past. Not because there's anything missing from God's character, there's no lack in his character at all, but because he wants to invite us to communion with him. Which is why every person that you have ever met longs for intimate, loving relationships, longs for deep friendships, longs to be fully known and yet still loved because we are made in the image and the likeness of the one who is one God, three interdependent persons. Another one of the Greek words that is thrown out a lot as it relates to Trinity studies is perichoresis, and perichoresis means to dance around, and it's one of the key words that was used 
when uh, early church fathers were helping to give definition to what the Trinity is, and it's this idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were in this dance, this loving dance, from before the foundations of the world with one another. And it's an outward moving dance that they invite us into. Wow. God is love. Finally, I believe God is Trinity, and the scriptures reveal himself to us as Trinity to teach us that God is way above us, and simultaneously he's way into us. You know this? Your God is way above you. He is transcendent. He is the high and lofty and holy one that we sang of this morning, holy, holy, holy. He is that way above us. And yet at the same time, he is near to the humble and the contrite who get down on their knees on communion Sunday and admit that I am a sinner in need of your grace once again. He is way into those who are humble and contrite and tremble before him and say, Holy Spirit, would you come dwell in me through the way who is Jesus Christ? He's way above us. He provides an objective way, and yet he's subjectively, imminently within us each, such that we really are never alone. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, our counselor, and our friend. One of my heroes is a man named John Wesley who was a leader of the Great Awakening both in Europe and in the United States and up into Canada. He was used mightily by God to bring Great Awakening and revival to two separate continents in the 1800s. And he lived faithfully before God for 90 years. And he was so careful to work out his salvation with fear and trembling and to work toward sanctification that he... He cared deeply about his holiness as he lived before God. And he was perhaps the most dedicated evangelist since the Apostle Paul. He tracked some 250,000 miles on horseback, preaching the gospel some 40,000 times. He memorized almost the entire Bible. And on his deathbed, uh, historians were there along with his family members, And in his last 60 seconds, a historian recorded his final words. And he brought his family close to him at age 90. And he looked at them and he said, come near. And he whispered to them as best he could, best of all, God is with us. You got to understand, Wesley in that moment could have uttered a thousand truths. But he lied back down, and he summoned enough courage over the next 10 or 15 seconds to sit back up one more time and thrust his hand in the air and repeat himself, best of all, God is with us. He's way above you, and he's way into you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you are the source of every person in this world and every person in this room, every person in the venue this morning. None of us are an accident. Each and every one of us was made on purpose by our Father, the source of life for all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have provided the way to the Father, that though each of us has fallen short of the Father's glory, and each of us has fallen into our own sins, and each of us has lived for autonomy and independence and pleasure, and we've each made idols, you gave your Son, the righteous one, to overcome our unrighteousness and to bring us to the Father. You are the way, Lord Jesus. And we remember that way today as we come to the communion table and we give thanks that you are still with us now, that you have not left us alone, but you live in us through the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us life. Amen.